Hey, good afternoon, and welcome to Issues in Mediation. Uh, just a couple house cleaning matters. Uh, the restrooms in, uh, there are no restrooms on the ninth floor. You do need to go down to the eighth floor. Uh, so sorry about that. And uh, if you stay to the end, we'll, we will validate your parking. If you sneak out early, uh, you'll be, you may be responsible for your own parking, or you'll have to head down to the second floor to get it validated. Uh, we do have two presenters today. And the first is Professor Art Hinshaw, who is the Clinical Professor of Law and Director of the Lodestar Dispute Resolution Program at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. And if you haven't seen that building yet, it's unbelievable. Uh, it just opened last week, and uh, we toured it, uh, and it, it's just phenomenal. You, you wouldn't believe just how nice that is, and it's actually in the city of Phoenix. Uh, Professor Hinshaw has presented for us several times, and usually the most feedback that I get for Professor Hinshaw is we wish we could have had him longer. Uh, so we're glad to have him for 2.25 hours today. Uh, our other presenter is uh, Professor Susan Daykoff, from the, who, who is the Professor of Law and Director of Clinical Programs at Arizona Summit Law School, which is about a block that way. I haven't toured that one yet. Uh, Professor Daykoff, her biography is in your materials, and, and take a look at it. What a phenomenal background. And, and as I'm reading through her biography, I'm thinking about all the other classes I'm going to bring her back for. Uh, so we're, we're very happy. Uh, and she does teach uh, professionalism and uh, very involved in mediation and lawyer well-being. So um, there's a hint as to what we're going to bring you back for. Okay, thank you. <laughs> so let's uh, welcome our two presenters. Hi, everyone. It's good to be back. Um, sometimes when I uh, come to these programs, I think that you all are sick of me. So um, if you are sick of me, thanks for, I guess you probably wouldn't have come. So um, anyhow, let's get the clicker. Is that different? Oh, sorry. Here's the clicker. There it is. So I'm going to go first. Susan's going to go um, next. The topic that I want to talk about um, is confidentiality. We were doing a program, I want to say, in March or something along those lines. So I got to turn this way, and it was clear that it was at least it was clear to me that just a brush up on confidentiality and how it works and things along those lines um, would be a good thing for us to do. There's been some case law developments in the last couple of years, some things that can get a little bit confusing. So our what is our default? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? That's sort of what everybody says, and then they're done with confidentiality, but. Um, I want to go over the statute. I want to go over the policy reasons behind it, sort of how it works. Um, there was a case that came down last October that talks about, uh, from the Arizona Court of Appeals, that talks about um, exactly um, how strong, it just tell tells us how strong our confidenti confidentiality statute is because it is probably the strongest privilege that there is um, out there. Um, so. The first thing I want to talk about are some of the policy concerns. Ah, some of the policy concerns um, related to confidentiality. Why do we have confidentiality in the first place? Um, and the, you know, I need to carry too many things around all at once. I'm going to put this in my pocket and then carry these. Um, it's all right. I'll, I'll try it this way, and if it doesn't work, uh, I'll hand it off. The um, the first thing is that, as we all know, that people in conflict situations tend not to communicate. 
what did they do? The first thing they do is they stop talking. They start avoiding each other. Maybe they start sending emails so they can control their communication um, a lot better. And the quality of communication becomes quite poor. Um, in fact, just a quick question. How many times do you have people who say, we haven't talked since the you know, process was served, since I received the complaint? I mean, that's almost every single time um, you do a mediation. And many people don't think that they're allowed to talk, in part because when you read press reports, you'll hear, like, let's just say, for example, because this is in the news, Donald Trump will not release his tax returns. Why? Because he's being audited. Right? If, I'm, if there's some official activity going around, then I can't talk to anybody. I think that that's what a lot of lay people believe uh, because they see it in the media. So we know that the quality of communication goes down, goes down dramatically. And in mediation, the first thing we want to do is we want to bump that back up. We want to have in-depth conversation. We want to really get into whatever it is that we need to get into. And so confidentiality gives us that protection Another thing, or it gives us that ability, the other thing, or one of the other things that it does, is it protects us as mediators. Confidentiality helps maintain the quality of the process. It helps maintain our impartiality and neutrality. And just as an aside, impartiality and neutrality are often talked about as the same thing, as if they are synonyms but they actually mean things that are different. Impartiality is how we treat people, and neutrality is about the result. I'm neutral about the result. It doesn't matter to me if you pay or you don't pay. Impartiality is, are you treating me nicely? Are you treating me fairly? Are you treating me evenly with them? Um, and so how does confidentiality protect us? Well, we are holders of that privilege as well. So we don't, have, we don't have to testify in court, right? Um, and we're gonna go through the statute basically line by line um, in a minute. Um, but we don't have to testify in court. We can challenge any kind of subpoena that would come our way. And I all but guarantee, uh, you know, I would, put, I would put my house up, you know, on a deal that, it would, that you would win as the mediator. You would not have to testify. Doesn't mean there might be a special action or something like that to get up to the Court, the court of Appeals quickly, but that's how strong this privilege is. The other thing that we need to think about um, in increasing the quality of communication, giving us our protection, is that people feel safe. That's the quality of the process. People feel safe. They may be vulnerable, they may feel vulnerable, but they feel safe to share. And that's one of the things that we as mediators do, is that we can help parties feel that amount um, of safety. And so, those are the policy concerns. And then when we think about how it works, it works sort of in an internal way and in an external way. The internal way is very easy to understand. This is basically when you're in a caucus situation, you're having individual meetings with one person, party A, individual meetings with party B. You tell one of them, is there something you don't want me to share? And they say, yeah, don't tell them that I've got a job offer. Okay, I won't tell them that you've got a job offer, right? If I tell that to party B when I go next door, hmm, that's internal confidentiality. I've just breached the internal confidentiality. And if you take a look at your materials, 
right here. Um, these aren't numerically paid, paginated. Well, maybe they kind of are. Um, you'll find the model standards of conduct for mediators here. Now, just as a quick reminder, who enforces the model standards of conduct for mediators? Anybody know? Who? Supreme Court, that's a good guess. Any other guesses? The answer is not the Supreme Court. The they haven't adopted these. The United Nations? The United Nations. <laughs> Whoever adopts these, basically it's the provider organization that would enforce these if they have adopted them. They're not state law anywhere that I'm aware of. They're not, are they for you? <laughs> that I know of. Yeah, not that I know that's why of. I said the United Nations. <laughs> and so that's why it comes to provider organizations. So Charlie, has the Justice Court adopted these? All right, so the Justice Court hasn't adopted these, but if there were a real problem, this is where probably everybody would go. So it might be a good idea to think about adopting these for your mediation program. So it's the providers who are the uh, police presence on the ethics rules. Now for judicial ethics, it's not even the Supreme Court there, it's the uh, Commission on Judicial Conduct, which um, works closely, which actually works out of the Supreme Court building. So if you take a look at the, moders, the model standards of conduct for mediators, they were, um, this is the second round of versions. The first one came out, I think, in 1995. This version is of now 11 years old, and it's sort of withholding the test of time. Susan's gonna talk about it um, in a little bit more depth than I am. But I want to talk about, I think it's standard four, no, standard five. Standard five is about confidentiality. Um, and so confidentiality is an ethical issue sort of in and of itself. Talking about confidentiality um, gets us, I, I think it satisfies people who, um, you know, wanna, if you're watching the clock on exact number of minutes on your iPhone, that we're talking about um, ethics start now. Okay. Um, so if you take a look, a mediator shall maintain the confidentiality of all information obtained in the mediation unless other, otherwise agreed, right? And so this tells us more about um, what it is that you and I talk about, what we talk about with our parties. And this talks about, this is about setting expectations. Much of ethics is about expectations and how we treat um, individuals. And part B tells us about the internal process of mediation. Meeting with persons in private session, a mediator shall not convey directly or indirectly any information that was obtained during that private session without the consent of the disclosing person. So really the internal confidentiality aspect is an ethical aspect. It's not in any statute. You'll take a look at the confidentiality statute in Arizona. It's not really anything about this internal confidentiality. What it is, is about you and your relationship with the people who are your mediating parties. And you make promises to them, you keep those promises. Um, and so we know that when we're doing our caucusing, when we're doing our individual meetings, it's very important for us to make sure that we know what we can share and what we cannot share. Because 
Number one, we don't want to impact the Justice Court mediation program and have people calling up Judge McMurray or others, Judge Tolby, saying, by the way, these mediators are terrible, let me tell you what they're doing, and you know, we're having problems on this internal mediation confidentiality. So we need to, number one, make sure what it is that we can say and, and we can't say. A lot of people, or at least it used to be, when I came into the field um, in around 2000, people would say, I'm gonna keep everything confidential unless you give me permission to share it. And since then it has flipped that the standard is more of, I'm gonna presume that I can share anything unless you tell me not to share it. My preference is the second one, I'm gonna share everything, or I have the permit your permission to share everything unless there's something you don't want me to share. Why? Because I can remember two things pretty easily. If you give me a list of you know, 20 things or something like that, which I've never had that happen in justice court, in federal court, in superior court, at the EEOC, all, all kinds of high and low dollar cases. I only get one or two things that people don't want shared. It might be the job offer, might be you know, something else that they consider very sensitive. And sometimes I'll even bargain with them. Tell me why you don't want to share this because this seems like really critical information that might help things down the line. You can do that. There's nothing in the ethical rules that says you cannot bargain with people about what they think is confidential or what they want to keep confidential from their counterpart in the mediation. And if you, as a, using your professional judgment, think that it's important for that information to come out, that it will help you, have that conversation. My experience is that most people say, no, there's nothing. Is that consistent with yours? Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. Um, so it's actually pretty easy, and we typically don't think of it as an ethical issue, but it actually is. So we have that internal component, and then we have the external component. And the external component is the one that everybody is worried about. Um, why are we worried about it? Well, because we're talking about disclosures outside of Vegas. We were in Vegas, we have left Vegas, we're now at you know, Lake Havasu, we're in Kingman, and now everybody's yapping on the cell phones. And what do we do in those kinds of situations? So this tells us, remember, this is for mediators. The ethics rules are just for mediators themselves. And the um, confidentiality statute is for mediators and parties. Um, and so what are we talking about when we're talking about external? We're talking about disclosure outside the mediation. We're talking about disclosures from me, the mediator. I go home, my wife says, hey, how was that mediation today? I'd be like, oh, you would never believe what happened to Chapman Chevrolet. I can't do that, right? I can't say those kinds of things. I might say, it was a pretty standard mediation and then try to change the topic because I don't want to seem rude or something um, along those lines. So it's my disclosure to non-parties, it's party disclosure to non-parties, and sometimes this is something that we need to talk about. I think it's really important um, to have this conversation where I'll say, have you been talking to your friends about this problem? And people will say, what? Of course. Do you have a couple people who are like your go-to support friends, maybe your neighbor, your aunt, or your cousin, or whatever, and they'll say, yeah. And I'll say, so they know everything about up to today, they know you're at mediation, they'll say, yeah. And I say, what are you gonna tell them when you go home? 
And they're like, how was the mediation? Did it work? And I'll say, well, I was going to tell them what happened. They say, well, you can't under the law. And so sometimes we'll talk about how do you talk about the mediation to people who you've been talking with for a long time. Because it seems really rude to be like, I really need your help. I really need to lean on you and support in this situation. And then suddenly you're like, thanks for all your help. Can't talk to you about that anymore. Right? It puts them in a tough spot. Um, and so you, know, you can have conversations about what it is that they can say to people um, down the line. So that's mediator and um, parties to non-parties. Then we have the current litigation. And the current litigation is, OK, this case doesn't settle. It goes to, ends up you know, going to one of our judges. It goes to Judge Macbeth or whoever. Um, and then what's Judge Macbeth going to do? What are you going to talk about? And I always give them the example of if you say, in mediation, this, you know, the mediator said, right, everybody does that. Um, and then we also have concerns about future litigation down the line. And that's where typically the case law comes in. Typically the case law is you have case one, where something happens in mediation, and then there's case two, where you're trying to get information from the mediation in case one. Um, and we have, a, we have a case exactly like that here in Arizona. Um, and that's the one that came down last October. All right, so as I fumble around in my pocket. All right, so the first thing that you really want to think about when you're thinking about confidentiality protection is you want to know what's the source of the protection. This is critical information. What is the source of confidentiality protection? Because that tells you what the contours are. And confidentiality is almost meaningless if you don't know what the contours are. So typically, there are three places where mediation and confidentiality protections come from. The first one is from contracts. And we use that in justice court. Anybody know what that is? How, how do we use contractual confidentiality in justice court mediation? Disclosure and confidentiality. That's exactly right. The forms that we have them sign at the beginning are the contract that they're agreeing to abide by one of the other forms of confidentiality protection. So contract is one. If there's a problem down the line, somebody could have a breach of contract claim. Claim two could be the breach of contract for confidentiality. So that's the first way that we do it. Another way we do it is through court rules. And typically, court rules, what they'll do is they'll say, this is the confidentiality standard in mediation. And um, for example, in the US Bankruptcy Court here in Arizona, that's what they do. They say the Federal Rule of Evidence 408 standard is our confidentiality protection standard um, in this court. Um, we don't have something like that in Justice Court. I mean, we do have the Arizona Rules of Evidence, which do have Rule 408. And by the way, anybody know what Rule 408 says off the top of their head, Judge Dodge? Didn't mean to put you on the spot, Judge Dodge. You don't have to. Anybody know? Yes, sir? Some negotiations are confidential. And because? Oh, Rule 408 says it. 
Well, that's not exactly what it says. It's not exactly what it says. That, that is the essence of it, right? But it does have exceptions. So, rule for, uh, uh, Arizona Rule of Evidence 408, and it's not in your materials, says basically attempts to negotiate, um, attempts to settle, those are confidential when trying to prove liability. If you're trying to prove that, oh, they were gonna pay me $4,000, that shows that they know they did it. Rule 408 says you can't bring it in for that. Here's the, top, here's, the, here's the rub though. 408 does say you can bring it in for other things. You can bring it in to show bias. You can bring it in to show undue influence. It has a list. And as long as that's a legitimate reason, like it fits those things, then people can bring bring it in. Bring in the confidentiality, the, what people thought was confidential before. So you can bring it in in case two, you can bring it in in case one. And so rule 408 is not as ironclad as most people think it is. And if you get some really crafty and clever lawyers involved, they might be able to worm their way through rule 408. So I always say, when you think 408 is the answer to all your problems, it's not. It really isn't. And then the last method is the statutes. Is, is there a mediation confidentiality statute? In Arizona, we have ARS 12-2238, which a form of it has been on the books since 1991. Um, it was amended, I think, in 1993 or 1994. And it was amended again in 2006 or 2007. And it was amended again um, this past legislative session. So if we take a look, by the way, how about this? Any questions before we get really into the statute? No? All right. If you do have a question, anytime, just raise your hand, and when I stop to take a breath, I will call on you. All right, so the first handout, or the first substantive part of the handout is the new statute. So, as a reminder, the Justice Court forms, the form that they sign in the beginning, incorporates this statute. By the way, this is confidential according to the contours of 12-22-38. You can spend, if you wanted to, a good 30, 35 minutes talking about what those contours are. We typically don't, right? We typically go over it very quickly, let them know these are the kinds of things that are going to be confidential. These are the kind of things that aren't going to be confidential. So let's take a look um, at the statute itself. So the first thing you want to do is, I mean, you start at the top, right? Section A, a mediation can occur basically at any time. All right, thank you very much. Um, now on to B. B is what's the critical portion of this statute or the meat of the statute, um, I should say. And so, it says this, the mediation process is confidential, period. That's it. Mediation is confidential. That's about all you need to know for this statute. 
That's probably about all most anybody knows except geeks like myself and Susan. Okay, Susan's not as geeky as I am, but I'm pretty darn geeky. Um, and mediation is confidential. There's no definition of confidential in the statute. And so this is basically an absolute, very easy subject, verb, object, period type sentence. It is confidential. There is no other privilege in Arizona that is this ironclad. There's none. It is amazing how ironclad um, this is. And then so it goes to explain this a little bit more. Communications made, materials created for, or used, and acts occurring during a mediation are confidential. So, materials created for a mediation. This, create, this can create a little bit of problem for us in justice court. Why? Because somebody can say, I created this portfolio, I created this thing for mediation, but not for discovery, not for trial, those kinds of things. And there's a case out of California where there was, uh, it was an apartment complex. And this apartment complex turned out to be a bad apartment complex, full of mold and all this kind of stuff. And so the owner of the apartment complex sued the architect and the builder, right? And they went to mediation and they prepared notebooks full of photos, right? They just went through and took photos of everything that needed to be fixed and all this kind of stuff. And um, in mediation, they come up with a deal. So that's case one. This is the Rojas case, by the way, R-O-J-A-S, Rojas. In case two, who do you think says, we, we need a piece of this action too? The tenants, exactly right. Hey, we're the ones who have been exposed to the mold. We got the problems, those sorts of things. So the tenants then sue the landlord, the designer, and the builder. And they say, hand us any pictures you have of what happened, of what the place looked like before. And so, right, all the pictures are in this mediation folder, this mediation binder. And it goes up to the California Supreme Court, and the California Supreme Court says, yeah, these pictures were for mediation. Um, you can't have them, tenants. Sorry. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think those pictures were only taken for mediation? You all should be doing this. Of course not. What's going to happen if, this, if that didn't settle? This was going to be exhibit one, two, three, et cetera, et cetera. So you can find people who label things as for mediation purposes only and things along those lines. So just be aware of that, those of you who are also pro tems and uh, do some judging, just FYI, down the line. So acts occurring during the mediation are confidential. So some um, mediation party gets a little bit uh, in a tiff and flips you the bird. That's confidential. I hope that nobody has had that happen. Um, but that would be confidential. All right. Now, here's the other part that's really important. All right. We're talking super confidentiality, super confidentiality, super confidentiality. And then 
unless one of the following exceptions is met. So you have five exceptions to the absolute everything is confidential. First, everybody, all parties to the mediation agree to the disclosure. If everybody agrees, then fine. There is an issue as to whether party to the mediation includes the mediator. Um, there are some states that say yes, Arizona has not answered um, that question. The communication, material, or act is relevant to a claim or defense made to, uh, by a party to the mediation against the mediator, against me, Hinshaw mediator, or against the uh, mediation program, so the Justice Court mediation program, if they have some kind of claim um, arising out of the mediation in some kind of way. Now, let me ask you this. Let's say that somebody files suit against you as mediator for what you did in Justice Court. What do you think is gonna happen? So first, you're gonna be probably a little angry. That's gonna be number one. Number two, you're gonna call Charlie or Judge Tolby. What do you think is gonna happen? Why would it get thrown out? Well, that's not what this says, right? The, the exception is unless an exception, one of these is met, and number two says, bringing a claim or defense against a mediator. So they're suing me. Yes? Raise a claim of immunity. Yes, we're gonna raise a claim of immunity, and what is that claim? Well, it falls under the judicial. Exactly right. We are part of the judiciary here. We're doing part of the justice court's work. That's what our claim is gonna be, and I mean, I'm not giving you legal advice or anything, but my guess is that then it's gonna be out because that's really strong. Judicial immunity is very strong. Yes? Art, is that stronger than F? It trumps F of the statute. Um, so we'll get to F, okay. and they, they actually they work hand in glove, okay. right? So F is really important for private mediation, um, just FYI. Okay, so they can bring a claim against um, mediators, so this is more about private mediators than um, justice court mediation. And if they sue the justice court mediation program itself, same sort of uh, result. So number three, the disclosure is required by statute. So what are we talking about there? So anybody here a social worker? <coughs> anybody here a physician or any kind of medical caregiver? Anybody here under any um, requirements to um, uh, report child abuse or elder abuse, you are. So, you then would have to report. If somebody says, yeah, I owe the $5,000, and the reason I owe the $5,000 is because I set the baby on fire and had to take him to the hospital, right? And you're like, oh, I'm gonna have to report that. And if you are a mandatory reporter, then you need to make that clear in your disclosures up front. I've had students who are also social workers. I presume, Susan, you have as well. Um, anybody who's in the medical field, if you're a nurse or even, you know, a dental tech or things along those lines, um, teachers, exactly right, um, would be required to report. Um, number four, the disclosure is necessary to enforce an agreement to mediate. So what does that mean? That essentially means as a part of a mediated uh, settlement, somebody agrees to mediate going forward. If there are disagreements on this, agree on this mediated agreement, on this settlement, we will then mediate those. 
that's what it's talking about. It is a very, very, very narrow sliver. I don't know of any cases where that um, has come up. Yes, sir. On the disclosure, in the, in the mediation disclosure and confidentiality agreement, it says uh, you're required by law to report threats. Yes. Who yes. You can report it to anyone. So that's one of the other um, exceptions. That's not one of these five. So physical threats of harm is an exception to the absolute confidentiality. And if you're at justice court, who are you going to report it to? Court security, sheriff, any bailiff, anybody who is really close by who can help you very quickly, right? Um, sometimes you have a phone there and you can just dial security and then you'll hear people running down the hallway um, to help you. Um, so that's a good point, but that's a part of it. And it's not a part of these five exceptions. Now, number five here is new as of Jan August 8th is when it went into effect. And this is really interesting because it came, this uh, came out of the case that came from October that we're gonna talk about in a moment. Um, and uh, this basically says that mediation programs, court-connected mediation programs can require their mediators to be reporters of child abuse and elder abuse outside of being a mandatory reporter. So we have one person who is a mandatory reporter in this room um, and if the Justice Court here decided that all mediators should be reporting this kind of stuff if it comes up, then this number five gives us as mediators the protection to disclose that information going forward. And it's for children and it's for elderly people. And the reason that that came in is because this case uh, from October brought a lot of concern from uh, the mediation program up in Yavapai County as part of their superior court. They do a lot of mediations uh, in family court. And they were requiring their mediators to report this thing, report child abuse or reasonable suspicion of child abuse or elder abuse, but that wasn't really maybe not a part of the statute. And they asked the Attorney General's office, well, this is what we require, and they the AG's office said, I don't think you can do that anymore, the way the statute is written and the way that this case came down. And so the Superior Court from Yavapai County then contacted their, their legislators, who then came up with this. And by the way, I am on record in 2007, I wrote a law review article about this saying that my belief is that mediators should be mandatory reporters for child abuse. Um, and it was nice when uh, I got a call from Yavapai County saying something along these lines. Your article is the only thing we can find on this topic. What do you think? Should we do this? Da, da, da. And I'm like, of course you should. Yes? Why is it limited to court-appointed uh, mediators? Because a lot of family law, they go to private mediators. Right. Um, well, right there, that's the way that that program was working. So I was thinking about that program in and of itself. but. If we read it, it says the disclosure is made in a report to a law enforcement officer um, about these things. So, right, it provides protection right in then and there. It doesn't say that you have to, but if you do, make one. Um, and Yavapai County requires their mediators to make those kind of reports. Um, okay, so that's part B. C is in cat. 
Wait, right? Wait, wait, wait. Oh, yeah. Okay, can we, okay. So let me make sure I understand. Here's your microphone. Oh, you've got one too. I do. I just want to make sure I understand this. So um, I want to be a geek too, so I'm going to try to come along with you. Um, so five says a court appointed mediator who makes a disclosure in these circumstances is not required to, it's not a mandatory duty, it, they, it is optional, but if they do make that disclosure, they've not breached confidentiality. That's correct. But it only applies to, it doesn't apply to private mediators. Correct. If you read it, notice that this is written in sort of a backwards way. What's important is the disclosure, so that's the subject of the sentence. The disclosure is made in a report dot, 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 by a court-appointed mediator. So who is doing the acting? The court-appointed mediator is the one who is the actor. And they're making the disclosure. And it's only reporting to law enforcement officer, Department of Child Safety, or Adult Protective Services. Correct. And going back to the earlier question, I don't know if our, if this is, I have the current form in front of me, but our forms in Justice Court say that we're required by law to report to the court any immediate threat or infliction of physical harm is different. But for example, if I was a court appointed mediator and I reported to the court, this wouldn't apply. It doesn't sound right. But that's that's what it says, right? Well, um, hold on a moment because let's see. Part E. Letter E is an elephant. Notwithstanding subsection E, notwithstanding the all communications are confidential. Threatened or actual violence that occurs is not a privileged communication. So there's nothing, you know, where they sit up and whack the other person with the nunchucks or something along those lines. No, I'm thinking of being a justice court court-appointed mediator right. and finding out about current or past abuse and reporting it to the court wouldn't be the right way to track, to, to comply with number five. The right way to comply with number five is to um, follow the statute and report specifically to a, not a judicial officer, but a, a police DPS type officer. Okay, so let's see. C is in cat. This says that you are not subject as mediators to service of process. So there you go, you're out. Right? Somebody tries to serve you, there it is, C as in cat. That's why I say 99.75% surety that my house would be safe when I put it up on the Vegas market based on you being subpoenaed. Whether you're um, mediating for the Justice Court or in a private capacity. Okay, D with D as in dog. This was the 2006 um, addition that we made to the statute. I was part of the committee that helped uh, with this. And the reason that D as in dog came into place um, is that really, if you read the statute, you could, agree, you could write a settlement agreement up as part of the mediation and, from, and that document itself is a confidential communication. Right, Because it's part of the mediation process, you're going back and forth, and we all know that when you're writing the documents up, what's happening? They are still negotiating almost every single time. Oh, does that mean I have to do it this week? Yes, it means this week. Oh, I can't do that. Erase, erase, erase. Cross out, cross out, cross out, right? 
That's still part of the mediation process. So some clever person could have made an argument that, yeah, you're trying to enforce this mediated agreement with me, but it actually is a confidential communication from the mediation itself, so you have no evidence that there's even a contract. Hmm. Yeah, I got to testify in front of the legislature on that one, and you see eyes go, really? I said, yeah, we need to do something right away on this. Um, so anyway, that went through uh, pretty quickly. And then you can get into, well, what, what are we talking about here? So you see about the what? The next sentence, the agreement may be introduced in any proceeding to obtain court approval of the agreement. Great. Um, and if, it, if somebody asks for this to be confidential, it can be done in camera and all kinds of things um, along those lines. All right. Now, notice this first sentence notwithstanding the everything is confidential section, when necessary to enforce an agreement that is reached by the parties, the terms of an agreement that is evidenced by a record that is signed by the parties is not confidential. So oral agreements, out the window. They're not gonna work. You have to write it. And it has to be signed by the parties. So. Those of us who do telephonic mediations with debt collection companies, you want to sign not your name, but their name, right? Do I have permission to sign your name, you're the party, to this form? If I sign my name, that doesn't really mean anything. I'm binding me? You're giving the court authority to bind you? It just makes no sense, so you always wanna sign the name of whoever it is on the phone, and then you can say, you know, with permission by your name. Do not write with permission by Art Henshaw, because that would be forgery. Um, I can write that, but you can't. So use your own name uh, when you do that. It's Otherwise, they have a piece of paper that they can't enforce. Or at least there's a good argument that they can't um, enforce it going forward. Okay, so we talked about E as an elephant. F is what Susan brought up earlier, so we know that um, under B's boy five, where it talks about making some kind of disclosure to any kind of police official about child abuse, child neglect, elder abuse, elder neglect. Um, you know, if anything comes out of the justice courts aimed at you as a mediator, you're gonna have judicial immunity. This is for private mediators, F. So, private mediators, guess what? You are really lucky, you have qualified immunity. So, you're immune. This isn't even about confidentiality, this is immunity, right? You are immune, you're not subject to civil liability unless there is intentional misconduct or a reckless disregard of a substantial risk of significant injury. A reckless disregard, number one, that's a high standard. That's a really high standard. Or intentional, so if you get up in a mediation and you decide to smack somebody around, they're not gonna say, oops, it slipped, like I used to say to my sister when I was seven, right? No, it's gonna be clear that you tried to smack somebody in the mediation, and people will be able to testify about that, and then they could get damages um, against you. By the way, just as an aside, there was a judge I want to say in Florida. Did yeah. you hear about this? I watched the video. Oh, you saw the video? The one that hit him out in the hallway? Yeah. Yeah, I watched the video. I showed in class. Uh, good. Very good. <laughs> so if you're a judge pro tem, do not hit people 
Just FYI, you don't get protection for that he, um, he, either. Yeah, I don't think he's still got his, all his licenses. And probably doesn't have all his facilities either, <laughs> the faculties. Um, okay, so now here, section G is in good, talks about what the definitions are. So it goes through, and these the new ones all deal with um, abuse and neglect, and they define them in terms of what the criminal statutes are. So abuse, child abuse, exploitation, mediation. This is really important um, for down the line. And by the way, how am I doing on time, Susan? I don't want to take up your time. You can talk till 3. What time is it? It's 2.15. Okay. Um, so mediation, this is really important, means a process in which parties who are involved in a dispute enter one or more private settlement discussions outside of a formal court proceeding with a neutral third party to try to resolve the dispute. Does that mean everybody needs to be sitting in the same room? Does that mean that people can still be emailing the mediator the next day? We know if it, any people who do private mediations do that all the time. There's nothing that says they need to be in the same room. There's nothing that says when the mediation ends. Now, I used to be in Missouri. Those of you who know me, I love Missouri. Go Fighting Tigers of Mizzou. And, um, the statute there specifically talks about the end of the mediation, and so, and it may have changed since I left there 12 years ago, um, but programs like this would talk about when the end of the mediation is under the statute, and, um, but we don't have that here. So I'm gonna argue very strongly that if I'm still talking with the mediator, the mediation is still going on. And it doesn't say that this person needs to be paid Right? Because some people might say, well, as a private mediator, you're not paying Bruce Meyerson anymore. That's not what the statute says. The statute says, I'm involved with private settlement discussions outside of a court. If that's what I'm doing, and that party is neutral, that's mediation for this privilege. So just note that um, going forward. Um, let's see. All right, so let's move on. Oh, let's move on from the statute in and of itself to talk about these three important cases. Only one of these three important cases um, is in your materials, and let me tell you why. Because I think two of them are wrongly decided, and I don't want you saying, oh, this is what the Ninth Circuit said when they said something wrong. So I'm going to tell you why the Ninth Circuit is wrong. I'm going to tell you why the Arizona District Court is wrong. Um, and so I want you to know that those cases are out there. I also want you to know that if you hear people arguing those cases in a certain way, that those cases do not follow our statute, although they say they do follow our statute. So the first case. Grubaugh versus Blomo. This happened in Maricopa County. This is a case one, case two type situation. Case one, Ms. Grubaugh is in a divorce. Her husband has a substantial amount of assets. I shouldn't say her husband. They're fighting over a substantial amount of assets. He runs a business, and that business, there's a question of sort of how much this business is worth and things like that, and lo and behold, Shortly after the mediation, he sells the business for a lot more than he thought he thought the business was worth. Um, okay, that probably happens more than anybody would like to admit. Um, so 
They come to an agreement, though, in a mediation setting. And once the wife finds out what has happened, she starts looking at all the information about valuing the business and all this stuff and says, you know what, my attorney did a lousy job um, on figuring out how much this business is worth, gave me bad advice in the mediation, I'm gonna sue her for malpractice. And she brings a claim. And she sues her attorney in the Superior Court. And the Superior Court judge says, um, actually her attorney says, this is in mediation, it's confidential. And the Superior Court judge, Judge Blomo, says, I think you've waived your privilege, the mediation privilege here, because, or the mediation privilege has been waived because it should, it's held by the individual, not the lawyer, the individual, and she can waive it if she wants to. And the attorney said, not so fast, my friend, Judge Blomo, goes up to the Court of Appeals, and the Court of Appeals comes down with this opinion, which starts on the next page of your packet. And I don't know where this is reported. This, I don't know what its actual citation is. This is the copy I got when the case was handed down um, from the Court of Appeals. Um, and essentially, what the Court of Appeals says in this case is this. If you take a look at 2238 again, and take a look at Section B, and they pull it out, where do they talk about Section B? On page three and four of the opinion, Grubaugh filed this special action on paragraph four. Here's the Arizona mediation process privilege. Remember you note that in part B is in boy, there's no five here because it was before August 8th of 2016. And mediation process is confidential. And so they talk about all this kind of um, information about um, statutory interpretation and things along these, this line. And this is what they say. Uh, paragraph seven, second sentence. The mediation confidentiality statutes language is plain, clear, and unequivocal. The privileged communications are confidential and may not be discovered or admitted unless one of the following four, now five, exceptions is met. Bam, end of story. That's it, it's over. This case is now gone. So they go through and they say, this is not something that you can waive. Why, because this is held by a lot of different people. So, who, holds this privilege. Her husband holds it. Her former husband also has this privilege. Has he consented? It's his information that's now gonna be out there in the public. How are you gonna have a case against your attorney if you don't get context about why your attorney was giving you information? Suddenly, everything about their divorce is in the open. And the confidentiality privilege for him is wiped away and he might not even know about it. Right, then it could go up on a billboard somewhere you know, this guy's a big loser, look at the, he lied, 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 or something along those lines. So, this case says it needs to be one of those enumerated exceptions, and if it's not, I'm sorry. 
So she has no claim for malpractice, even if this attorney engaged in malpractice. There is no, if you're an attorney, by the way, and you want to engage in malpractice, during a mediation is the time to do it. Do not do it at other times. Do it in mediation. It's the only time you'll be safe. And there's a California case that says exactly the same thing. Yes, sir. Now, if the husband had agreed because she suing her lawyer, not him, if he had agreed to waive confidentiality, then Consume. one would apply for not. Now, it could or could not. It depends who party means. Right. So, in the California case, they go through, and the California case is a case called Castle. And Castle is cited favorably in this opinion. So in California, they had the same kind of case. It wasn't a divorce case. In fact, in California, everybody's agog about, oh my gosh, divorce cases, all this stuff could go public. It could impact the children, what the parents are saying, and who's meaning to them, and they could have psychological ramifications forever, da 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 da. Um, in the California case, what the argument was, you had case one, and then the attorney malpractice case, and it was a business situation. And the business owner said, I got bad advice that I should settle this case. Um, in case two, the malpractice claim against the attorney, what the um, plaintiff tried to argue, the client, I'm the party. It doesn't say attorneys. It says parties. I'm a party. And the California Supreme Court said, they're not talking about party in the sense of parties to litigation, because you don't have to be in litigation to be in a mediation. If you look at the definition of mediation, it says you can do it as part of litigation or non part of litigation. So we're not using party in the same way. Party just means participants. And is that attorney a participant in the mediation? Yes. Is the mediator a participant in the mediation? Yes. So all of those individuals in California, under California law, are parties under the statute. We don't have that opinion here in Arizona. This opinion does not go that far. In fact, it drops a footnote and it says, we are not, we are specifically not saying, you're concluding whether or not a mediator is a party to a mediation. So of course, that's the argument that you would make, right? That you go to number one because all the parties agree. But then that would need to go up too. And you have some case law out there that um, it's not, that, that it wouldn't work. Um, and remember, that California case castle has already been cited approvingly by the Arizona Court of Appeals in this Gruba opinion. So let me tell you about what's happening in California. In California, the California Law Revision Commission is now saying, well, this makes no sense. Attorneys can run amok in mediation now, <laughs> committing malpractice left and right, and right? Yeah. our tort system is to keep that from happening. So they're trying to come up with a method to allow attorneys to sue. And um, there's a little bit of conversation about this in the Grubaugh case, because in Grubaugh, um, Judge Gemmel on the Court of Appeals says, well, you know, if the legislator wanted, if the legislature wanted to exempt professional malpractice claims against attorneys, they would put it as an exception in the statute, which they've done in Florida, where Susan is from. Um, that's not the case here. So there you go on that front. So the California Law Revision Commission is trying to come up with different ways to get those attorneys to um, basically to give 
aggrieved um, clients a method to have a malpractice claim against their attorneys from mediation. And every, um, I talked with a couple people yesterday who are uh, following this very closely, and the mediation community is very against it uh, for the divorce aspect, you know, the billboard and all that kind of stuff. And you know that that would only happen with really, really wealthy people, um, not normal people like all of us. I shouldn't say normal. I should say financially normal. Or maybe I should just say people who don't have a lot, a lot of money. Um, so just be aware that this is happening. If California comes up with a system that goes through, it would not surprise me if then people in Arizona would try to adopt the California system, whatever it is. They were going to have early neutral evaluators. They're going to have in-camera review by judges, all sorts of things. And all of them have been given the thumbs down by the commission. But clearly, people on the commissioners on the California Law Revision Commission really think that something needs to be done about this. The California legislature thinks something needs to be done about this. Um, and so we'll see what happens there. All right, any questions about the Grubaugh case or anything around it? All right. Can we? Can yes. We, can we just make sure I know the practice takeaway? The practice takeaway. And so, going forward, we should. And so, so Susan says, "What's our practice takeaway?" And so, going forward, we should what? Going forward, you should recognize that California that um, mediation confidentiality is the strongest privilege that there is. That it is really rock solid. If you're going to have a public policy argument that you know something should not be confidential, a claim of malpractice against attorney is about as strong as it's going to get. And that gets shot down easy, easily, under the Arizona statute. So those of you who hate activist judges, this is the opinion for you, because it is straight, strict, strict statutory interpretation. Um, those of you who still hate uh, activist judges, in Oregon, there's the exact same kind of case as Grubaugh, and they came up with a judicial exception um, for these kinds of cases because they were saying, like, this is a terrible policy, da 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 da. This doesn't even go into the policy, it just goes straight, strict statutory analysis. And if it's going to change, we know where our legislature is, go for it. Um, so, that's where we are. Okay, these two cases, Donahoe versus Wilcox and Wilcox versus Arpaio, are related cases. And um, they're federal cases. This is out of the Maricopa County Wars. Remember that um, Andrew Thomas, when he was county, uh, excuse me, when he was attorney, no, county attorney, uh, he ran for attorney general and lost by a, just this much um, to. The guy, uh, he was Tom, Tom Horn, Horn, yeah, Horn, Horn, Horn. He lost by this much to Tom Horn, and then he was disbarred, which of course brings to mind of what if he had been Attorney General and still been disbarred? Could he be Attorney General still? Uh, but we didn't have that uh, question to answer. Pennsylvania. Oh uh, well, she stepped down. Oh, she did. She stepped down very quickly. Um, so in Pennsylvania, their Attorney General got in a lot of trouble too, and she stepped down. Um, 
but a different kind of trouble. So um, Andrew Thomas uh, and Joe and Sheriff Joe, they decide that um, the Board of Supervisors and some of the judges uh, in the Superior Court have some kind of a scheme uh, running where they're going to build that nice court tower that's over there, a couple blocks, the criminal court tower. And um, they go through, and what did they do? They basically arrest several judges on the Superior Court. They arrest people on the Board of Supervisors. They take all the computer equipment from the Board of Supervisors. They really go after them. Um, and long story short, they know, of course, no judge in Maricopa County can handle the case. Um, and it goes to uh, what Sheila Polk, the Yavapai County attorney, and the judge, I think, was in Gila County or something along those lines. And the judge says, everything, all these, this is completely meritless. This is just a fishing expedition. There's nothing there. There's nothing to be seen. Um, and Andrew Thomas loses his license. His, uh, one of his top deputies, Lisa Abuchan, loses her law license um, over it. And so then all of these individuals who have been arrested and charged sue Maricopa County. And one of those people is Mary Rose Wilcox, who was on the Board of Supervisors at the time. Um, in fact, I read that she's driving home and there's a helicopter, like the whole SWAT team is around her house and she's driving home and her daughter calls her and says, where are you? And she says, I'm driving home, why? I said, They're, they have the SWAT team out at your house to arrest you. And she's like, what, what for? Um, so, um, they go, they arrest her, all this stuff, fine, whatever, right? This stuff happens. And after all the criminal stuff is dismissed, um, and basically there's, there's nothing to see here, the, um, these people sue, Wilcox sues, and she, like Don Stapley, who's running for Congress um, out in the East Valley, was one of the people who sued. He was on the Board of Supervisors and was arrested. Um, some of the judges sued. They've all entered settlement agreements with the county, and the county has agreed to pay them substantial amounts of money. Wilcox is in mediation. Um, former Judge Skelly is the mediator, and the county agrees to pay her approximately $1 million in mediation. Um, and it's complicated, right? Because who pays, who's the end, who gets to approve the settlement? The board. the board of Supervisors. And she is on the Board of Supervisors, right? Um, and so she and Stapley are out. Uh, they can't really be involved in this. And so the remaining supervisors say uh, the county um, the county manager was a gentleman named David Smith. Some of you may know him. I don't know. I never knew him. They, through a resolution, said, Mr. Smith, we're giving you authority to bind the county. Whatever you think is appropriate, whatever that number is on these cases, you have our blessing to pay that amount. He'd been a, the county manager for a very long time and done a very good job, very trustworthy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so he's going through all these cases and settling them for six figures, some in the high six figures, no problem. Wilcox comes, $1 million. The remaining board of the people on the Board of Supervisors think that's ridiculous and try to stop it. 
And so Wilcox sues to enforce the settlement agreement. She's represented by Colin Campbell, you might remember, former Superior Court judge who works at Osborne Maladon, thorn in the side to Judge Orr. Okay, that's, we don't need to go into that kind of stuff. Who issued the search warrants? Um, <laughs> or, okay. Well, well, there you go. Um, so, former police officer himself, Judge Orr. So, um, Wilcox basically tries to enforce this settlement agreement and the county comes up with all these reasons why they should not pay the $1 million or almost $1 million. And we get this case, Donahoe versus Wilcox, Judge Wake is the one who um, comes up with the opinion. And essentially what happens is this. The mediator sends an offer to uh, attorney, former Judge Campbell. The county will is offering, and I'm going to make a number up, but it's close, $950,000. And Campbell says, my client will accept. That's what we have. That's what we have. That, that's our document. Two emails, one from a mediator and one from the attorney. And so, in trying to enforce this agreement, we look to the statute, and the statute talks about a record, right? A record signed by whom? Who needs to sign that record? The parties. So who signed that first email? The mediator. The second email, the attorney, my client approves, fine, no problem. The first email, the mediator sends, and Judge Wake in Donahoe versus Wilcox says, the mediator's signature is the same as the party's signature. Because the party had given the authority to the mediator to sign their name. But number one, he didn't sign the party's name anywhere. There's nowhere in that record that the party signed. The statute says, the party needs to sign the record. So that's why I think that, that decision is in error. I'm not saying that we wouldn't get there, because of course we would get there. We would find other ways to prove, based on conduct, that there was a settlement agreement. Well, what do you mean? So, Maricopa County, what did you do after this supposed settlement happened. We did this. We notified the county treasurer. We did whatever steps we were. We did. What did you do in these 20 other cases that you settled? We did the exact same thing. That shows, right, there's no question that these other settlement agreements um, were proper. That would show a course of conduct to show that we have an agreement. So they would be able to get there in some other kind of way. But they said the document itself. And so here's the other thing that's interesting. The County Board of Supervisors had to have a resolution to give Smith the authority. Doesn't the County Board of Supervisors have to do the same thing to give the mediator the authority to sign on their behalf? Judge Wake said, 
the mediator signed on their behalf and they didn't. So because it's a governmental entity, you have basically two ways of knocking it down. Yes, sir. I think you just He was the county manager. And by the way, he retired as soon as this was the last case. When this last case settled, he retired the next day. So if the, if the mediator had permission or authority for the party to sign, even if, the, even if the mediator signed his own name or her own name, that could be looked as an adopted, because permission was given or authority was given, then the party adopted their signature as so, but that's not what the statute says. The statute says the record must be signed by the party. And but what you're saying is what Judge Wake said, and I'm saying that that's not right under the statute. Yes, sir. Where did Judge Donahoe fit into um, Donahoe didn't fit into this. He was like the, he was the first plaintiff in all of the litigation, or something like that. He was the named plaintiff, and this was just part of all of these cases were combined. Um, for discovery purposes and things along those lines. And so Judge Donahoe, God, I can't remember all the other judges who got money. And I mean, when it's so, actually it's really quite interesting to hear um, the judges talk about like how this impacted them and things along those lines. Um, you know, and some of them crying on the stand and stuff like this, how it impacted their careers and those sorts of things. Um, so. The county not to be, not to be, what, dissuaded from their position, from Judge Wake, from Judge Wake. The county basically says, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is confidential under, like, you know, they had uh, Smith testify about what his intentions were. That's not what the statute says, right? Um, and so the county says, no, that's, we're not, this is not right. The Arizona Mediation Confidentiality Statute says specifically what it says. It's really clear. They take it up to the Ninth Circuit. And so the Ninth Circuit issues Wilcox versus Arpaio. I don't know why Arpaio is the defendant. Maybe he was one of the, the first defendants in the underlying case. Um, and so it goes up to the Ninth Circuit. And the attorneys for the county basically say, if you take a look at the Arizona Mediation Confidentiality Privilege, this is the way it should work. It should work this way, da 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 da. When this case was going up, I was saying, yeah, I think I think the county's going to win, and it's going to go back down, and they'll do this dance around to get to where they need to get. Um, and I knew one of the attorneys, and I told her that, and she looked at me very crossly. Um, and guess what? I was wrong. The Ninth Circuit said, um, yeah, basically they upheld the case, but for different reasons. Now here's the interesting thing. This is, what, this is what the Ninth Circuit said. The Arizona Mediation Privilege Statute is an evidentiary privilege in Arizona State Court. We're the federal court. This is, what, what privilege do we put in federal court? There's a question. Everybody assumed that it was the Mediation Confidentiality Statute. And even their arguments in the Ninth Circuit, everybody's talking about the, you know, 12-22-38. What the Ninth Circuit said is, this claim is mixed state law claims and mixed federal claims. And when you have mixed federal claims, the rules, the federal rules of evidence say, you know, you have to come up with what the federal, federal privilege is, 
and nobody's argued what the federal privilege is. Sorry. In fact, the county's attorneys said, on the record, in the argument at the Ninth Circuit, we are not arguing that there's a federal mediation privilege. We're arguing about this statute. And the Ninth Circuit said, sorry, the statute doesn't apply. Now they dropped a footnote, they dropped a footnote and they said, even though the statute doesn't apply, we think if we apply the statute, the result would be exactly the same and they adopt Judge Wake's um, arguments about, you know, the mediator had the authority to all this, which is wrong, which is wrong. And it's dicta from the Ninth Circuit, but since it's from the Ninth Circuit, we are gonna think it's really important and probably right because they're geniuses on the Ninth Circuit. So the reason I bring that up is I want you to know. Now, one other thing about Wilcox, about Donahoe versus Wilcox. And I don't want to, I don't want to see this mistake anyplace else in uh, Arizona as well. Judge Wake said, well, we could have this theory or we could have a different theory. You know, the theory that went up to the Ninth Circuit and in the footnote, they said, yeah, that works. The other theory is, well, the statute says that this applies to mediation communications. The mediation was over the next day when the mediator sent the email. They don't go through and look at the definition of what mediation is to see, and that's why I walked you through it before. If you keep that definition, there's no end to the mediation. If the attorneys had started just negotiating among themselves, yes, but, or you know the parties, but when they're still going through that third party intermediary, that's a mediation under our statute. So just FYI, more than you ever wanted to know about Arizona mediation confidentiality. But that's the way it works. Someday, I always keep threatening to do this, Susan, don't beat me to the punch, to write an article explaining this problem because I don't want the Arizona Court of Appeals to make that mistake that the Ninth Circuit and the US District Court um, has made. Okay, any questions? Yes, sir. Well, so then this doesn't clarify whether a mediator is a party to the mediation. That's correct. This case, none of these cases clarify whether a, mediation, a mediator is a party to a mediation. If I'm going to say, if I'm going to argue that a mediator is not a party to the mediation, I'm going to point to, let's see, which part of the statute is it? I'm going to part point to C, as in cat, where we talk specifically about a mediator is not subject to service of process, right? We specifically talk about mediators in part C, as in cat. Therefore, the legislature clearly thought that parties were different than mediators. That's what I would argue. Yes, sir. I have a question. What if one of the parties alleges that the other party did not mediate in good faith? What is the remedy? Well, that's a really good question. When a party does not mediate in good faith, what is the remedy? So what is good faith? That's the question. How do you define good faith? How do you define good faith? Well, with no, no real intent. 
that they obtain an outcome. Okay, so no real intent that they obtain an outcome. So just to be devil's advocate, to push you a little bit on this, is no resolution an outcome? Yes. So are they looking for no resolution? Yes. All right, so if they're looking for no resolution, whether or not it, they, they could be they wrong. They have to mediate because it's in the contract. I'm but, forced to go to mediation, right? but if I do so, I'm not gonna do their in reality, hoping that the mediator is gonna get a resolution. Okay, so I'm gonna to go to the mediation. It says I have to be there. I'm just gonna plant my fanny in the chair and be there. Yep. Sit there for the time, yep. absorb it, and then I'm done. I did what I was required to do. So, how many people think that doing what I've just said and what uh, this gentleman has suggested is bad faith? How many people think that? One, two, three, four, four out of 25? But I like to qualify that. You like to, how do you like to qualify? I, I think that I feel that internally in my gut, I agree with you. And it's actually one of my slides is, is and that the, alter, the, um, the alternative is you get through the entire mediation. At the end, they say, well, I'm not signing anything today. I, I wasn't gonna sign anything to on paper. I mean, without having my attorney. No, I, I'm not, I didn't come to sign. So I don't, I don't do what we're, what the papers say that we're allowed to do, which is to report to the court that the party did not mediate in good faith. But I don't, but my gut says we should. All right. So, but we're not doing it now. Well, this, this is really important. Okay. So, mediating in good faith, what does it mean? This is incredibly subjective, right? A lot of people say they're not mediating in good faith because they're not doing what I want them to do. That's right. So, that's number one. Well, them doing what you want them to do is not good faith or bad faith. Number two, they could just be really, really wrong, <laughs> right? They could just be really, really wrong. And there's nothing that says you can't be really, really wrong. Well, I'm, this is a, you know, I'm here because I have to be here, but I'm not gonna settle because I'm gonna win. Let me tell you why you're not gonna win. Look at this picture. Is this you, sir? Yes, it is. Is this you take, pulling out a gun? Yes, it is. Is this you taking the cash from the person? Yes, it is. And you're not gonna, and you're gonna win? That's right. I'm gonna win, right? They could be really, really wrong. And so it's very, very subjective, and it's really hard to determine what the subjectivity is. It's really hard. And so the cases across the country, and there are not very many of them, that talk about good faith in mediation, talk about objective standards. Did somebody show up? Did they fill out the paperwork they were supposed to fill up? Did they come with somebody who has authority? In fact, there's a... There's a case from the district court here in Arizona on judicial settlement conferences, and I can't remember, well actually, it is Pittman versus Brinker International, 216 Federal Rules Decision 481. It's Arizona's good faith case in judicial settlement conferences. I'll say it again, just the citation is 216 FRD 481, it's a case uh, from 2003. And it's a case, Judicial Settlement Conference, they sent somebody who had no authority to the settlement conference and the district court says, 
you know what, you should not waste everybody's time, right? The point you're getting to. It's objective criteria. There's a case out of the Eighth Circuit. That, but that's what they look at. He was actually stupid enough to say he had no authority. Well, they, they said, you know, I can, give, I can pay $300. Something like that. Yes, sir. I've, I've seen cases where they show up and they'll say either, I have no authority to settle. And as a judge, I found that then they failed to appear. Yeah. The parties failed to appear because they didn't send anyone who had the authority. And so they got to fail to appear and could end up with a default judgment. Uh, and, and the same thing when they come in and say, well, I don't have full authority. I'm only allowed to, uh, to uh, agree with what we've already offered, you know, say collection agencies. Right. You know, they've offered to settle it for 50% of the debt. Well, they come into mediation and say, well, I'm not authorized to accept anything less than 50%. Then they don't have full authority. They have not shown up with full authority if they say that. Right, and, and so that is an objective measure. And so this is what courts go for, objective measures to determine what good faith is. Um, in this case in the Eighth Circuit, it's you know same kind of things, and it's just ridiculous when you read it. Um, but people just saying, no, I'm not gonna do that. That, you're gonna have a really tough time. Now, I will give you an example, and then after this example, I'll hand it off um, to you, Susan. Oh, and we'll take a break? Okay. Um, we had a case uh, through the mediation clinic, um, and this was a case uh, several years ago where, um, you know, is it, I, I can't remember if it was a debt collection case or not, but, um, you know, one party has their attorney there, so it's a, a client and attorney, and then the other side has the attorney, and the attorney says um, something along the lines of, we filed our documents to prove, you know, to appear in lieu of the real party in interest. We can appear um, and all that kind of stuff. So it's like, okay. Uh, we look on the documents and we don't see it. And we, they said, well, they should have it because we filed it. And, you know, we go back and there's nothing filed. And this person's just lying to get into a mediation to say that they were there. Um, and so, basically, we confront this person. Well, we went back there, they have nothing. Are you sure you're, you sent it? And this was, I think, a very junior attorney who said, well, well, maybe we didn't. Maybe we made a mistake and we didn't file it or something like that. I mean, it's something that was just really clear. And so we just said, okay, you didn't appear and sent them on their way. Um, but we could have done it. I think we would have a legitimate case. This is one case out of 12 years. Um, we could have said that this was not participation in good faith. We probably could have said that, but we didn't. Um, so that's Arizona confidentiality. How about that? Who thought you could hear more than an hour's worth of information? See, you could do this in your opening statement. Let me explain to you how the confidentiality contours work, just so you're really clear, right? So. Uh, just be mindful uh, of those things. By the way, has anybody had a confidentiality problem in justice court? Anything ever come up with confidentiality? Oh, no, but I, go ahead, finish. But I wanted to, uh, before we left, in the interest of takeaways, I had a thought on this, um, on the how to sign 
I love this idea. You know, I there's so many reasons to sign the paper before we leave, right? To don't just leave it to. One of my other favorite ones is, oh, I have my own language. I'll send it along to the parties later and we'll sign it later. And I'm thinking, no, we're going to sign right now what we have agreed to, what you have agreed to. But here's my thought about for the telephonic parties. Would this work if the mediator signed Susan Dykoff for and on behalf of Dave Jones with the express consent of Dave Jones? Sure, but I would still sign Dave Jones first. Oh, okay. Would sign I, I, that would probably work, but I think the best practice is to actually sign their name first. Okay, perfect. Um, just to make sure that that's there. Yeah. So what I would do is print their name, appearing telephonically, and that it has a great signature. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Of course, then you could get into problems where then they're going to say like, "Well, I didn't agree to that" and stuff like that. So, but we've never had that one either. So, attorneys do it all the time. You get a motion, and one attorney signed for both sides, and you just yeah. with permission. Yeah, with permission. Yeah. There you go. All right. So we're going to. How long are we going to take for a break? Uh, return at three o five. Three o five. Oh, okay. He's okay, counted so. the ethics. He's counted the ethics minutes. Yeah. So, so come back at three o five, and we'll pick up with the next section, and I'll hand it off to Susan. So. We'll see you in just a little bit. So is, is there any uh, mention or talk about the fact that a mediator would be in, in the eight under agency law? And the mediator is an agent, like when you go to caucus, and you talk about these things, and then the agent says, wait, right. the mediator says, you stay here, I'm going to go there. Right, but then you have partiality problems if you're an agent for one side, which is what they're saying. Well, yeah, that's why it sounds just like As you heard, I'm, my name is Susan Dykoff from Arizona Summit Law School. I've been there for about five years. Before that, I lived in, uh, my husband and I like to say we spent 50 years on the East Coast, so now we're going to spend 50 years on the West Coast, something like that. Um, but I'm from Florida originally and then Chicago before that, so hopefully I've lost most of my Southern accent. I, you can tell me later if I have or haven't. But uh, really, I just think that was a fantastic presentation by Professor Henshaw. Uh, Art, that was great, and you are such a great talker speaker and such a so interesting and you obviously made what you said was going to be geeky into something very very interesting and fun to follow i took a ton of notes learned a lot so it was great do do i owe you money are you trying to get <laughs> well well uh, i'll send you an email about that and you can respond and okay. um no, i think that email is funny so um, my job is to talk about ethics. I teach professional responsibility, uh, which is not the kind of ethics we're going to talk about necessarily, but I love ethics and love to talk about it, think about it, so I think we'll be fine. But my job is to, uh, so I told Art I was going to talk about these topics, and he said, you have to connect every topic to a standard. So I went back, and every topic that I had laid out are all things that I wanted to raise for you as things that you know might come up in mediation, and how do you handle it, and what's the best practice. Um, I've been teaching in our mediation clinic for about three years I came to it through transformative mediation and through I have a psychology background and so I'm really uh, really interested in procedural justice and what parties really want what people want and need from the process and what makes them uh, you know just 
feel differently about it than they would if they didn't get procedural justice. So anybody remember the three, anybody familiar with the three pillars of procedural justice? What litigants say is most important about a process to make them feel that it was fair and that they feel satisfied with it. This is not, not in, this is a freebie. David, I know I have no name. Fair. David and shit, huh? One of those fair. What makes them? What makes people feel like it was fair? Any process, judicial process. That they've been heard. That they've been heard. So voice number one pillar. Second is uh, uh, that they. It's hard to remember. Voice is the easy one to remember, but um, they have, want to feel like they're treated with respect and dignity, and they want to feel like they have had some input into the decision-making process. Certainly in mediation, when, and that's what the procedural justice empirical studies say about people finding um, sense of fairness or satisfaction with the process. So that's kind of where I come to. Came into mediation sort of from that back door, from that side door, if you will, and I've been teaching in the, our mediation clinic for about, like I said, for about three years. So. Every time I say standard, we I want a wave or a cheer, right? So like, uh, and if you want to, you know, um, we can say go Gators. I can say go Gators. I guess you can say, you're, okay. but that's not where we are. So um, we're supposed to talk about the standards. So we have the standards in a handout, and the first I have 10, uh, 10 vignettes or things for us to go through. I don't know if we'll get through all of them, but um, I'm going to give you. I gave you my top top ones first. So this is the overall picture. We're going to talk about the real party and interest issue that Art mentioned briefly. Um, a couple little fun ones. I called them, I can't leave my minor child outside. Um, second one, I want to Google up the facts on my phone. <laughs> Third, uh, fourth one in this topic was, please watch the video I brought. I brought this to mediation, and I really want you, mediator, to see what I have on my phone. Um, and then that's all under quality of the process, standard six is kind of that integrity of the process. So I connected those to that to that standard. And the second standard is impartiality, standard two. Not neutrality, right? But do I have that right? Not neutrality, but impartiality. So not showing bias or favoritism or prejudice for or against a particular party. And so a couple of three ideas there. Hostility erupts between mediator and attorney. Um, and then drafting the settlement language. I want to talk a little bit about um, that, I have that under standard two, but really it connects to standard six A5, so we'll talk about that. Um, in the middle, counter-transference, I have a great set of, um, of questions. Did, and I don't know, you, you guys didn't get a copy. Did you get a copy of my slides? I know you front people did. Everybody get a copy of my slides in the back? The whole, oh wow, okay, fantastic. So for a takeaway, I wanted to make sure you had something nice and perhaps useful. Um, there's a slide that says counter-transference questions to ask yourself. Um, the set of questions that I think is relatively helpful, and I try to teach this to all of the students um, that are working either with a client in our legal clinic or working with a mediating party in our mediation clinic. And then uh, last, conflicts of interest. I have a couple of interesting conflicts of interest for under standard three that I wanted to bring to your uh, mind. And then Art really talked about the end of caucus confidentiality, that you know, at the end of the caucus when you say, okay, is there anything here that you know, I can't share with the other side, let me know and I'll keep that confidential. Um, that what I call advanced blanket consent. I was trained in 07, uh, standard, and I was trained the way that you described, which is the advanced blanket consent. Uh, as opposed to 
okay, I'm going to keep everything confidential unless you tell me what parts I'm allowed to share with the other side. So you kind of covered some of that already. So we kind of talked about it a little bit better. So that's the big picture. All right, that's where we're going. That's what we're going to do. Talk about a few standards, and of course, we're going to talk about my one of my favorite uh, wrinkles. Have you guys found that every time you go to a mediation, there's always a new wrinkle? There's always some new thing that something, I mean, that happens that you're like, I've never seen this. This has never happened before, at least with the students, it seems that way. So real party and interest is my first one. And I'd like to hear, you know, whether you've seen this, how you've handled it, whether you have a better best practice model than some of the things that I've, I've thought about. Um, but here's the situation. And Art kind of touched on it. The attorney shows up to the mediation solo. The other side's a pro-per, right? And the attorney says, um, well, I'm here. And you say, where's your real party and interest order in the file? Um, well, I, I don't have to do that. I don't have to do an order in the file. I'm like, well, let's look at the mediation um, notice, which says required appearance by a real party and interest. So if you'll turn in your notes to, or your handout, first handout, to the mediation notice under paragraph eight, it's pretty clear. There shall be at least one real party in interest who has full settlement authority to enter into a binding settlement agreement other than the party's attorney. And they say, uh, well, I have, I have full settlement authority, so I don't have to abide by this. And so then we say, well, it says that you do unless you get, a, you know, get the judge to sign an order permitting you to appear without the real party and interest present at the table. Why is it important from a mediation quality of process standpoint to have that real party and interest there? What's the purpose of it? Yeah. Okay, so from the client, but they've sent their attorney. So, assumedly, yeah, I mean, that's great. If, but if they've sent their attorney and they don't choose to show up, then I guess they don't care. What about the other side? No, they, they, they don't feel like they're getting ganged up on because they just, no, just the attorney shows up without their client, right. and then there's a pro per over here. The pro per feels like it's court that they're going to go against the attorney. Oh, they're they're gonna, gonna, oh I get you. Now they're going to go against the attorney and they're, it's not an unfair playing field. That's an interesting way of thinking about it. Yeah, no, I wasn't thinking about that. That's a good point, David. And any other ideas? Why would, why would a pro per want the corporate representative there? Think landlord-tenant, think HOA, think, don't think debt collector, because that doesn't, you know, they don't know the debt collecting case. Any ideas? I'm not sure I would trust the attorney to know the depth of my complaints and, uh, that I feel like the other side should be there to answer or be able to respond to. That's exactly what they say. That's exactly what, the, if it's a, that kind of a case, if it's not a case of the nameless, faceless um, party, that's exactly what their pro per party was going to say is I wanted, you don't know you weren't there. You weren't the one getting the emails, you know, at all hours of the night and day when, you know, when my pipes were busting in the apartment or whatever it is. And they don't feel like they had a fair process. So there's actually a reason for this. The attorneys, so the reason I bring this up is that we've had attorneys say to us, I don't have to do that, I'm here, that's good enough. And we've said, well, we're gonna mark you FTA, failure to appear. And then they lose their minds, right? They 
go ballistic. And I hear, well, not every justice court does that. Not every mediator does that. Why do you do it? What's your special about you? When did you get the special authority to do it? So then we got, then we had a really interesting legal argument one time, which I thought was kind of, kind of good, and I brought the justice court rules of civil procedure. The argument was that paragraph 8 cites to rule 131B, justice court rules of civil procedure. Justice court rules of civil procedure 131 apply to pretrial conferences does not apply to mediation conferences. Rule 130 applies to mediation conferences. So they argue that first, 131 doesn't apply, which says the party, if you look at 131, and the side would be A, the parties must allow, must attend a pretrial conference person in conference in person, unless the court allows a party to appear by telephone. So it says you have to be there in person. Then 130, they, they say, first of all, they say it's the wrong site, it's not the right site, this isn't a pretrial conference. So then we look at 130, Rule 130. Rule 130 says every party must participate in the mediation conference in good faith. And so they argue to me, and maybe they've argued to you, that that doesn't say that I have to, that the parties, this, they say the presence of the party's attorney is good enough. And, and they say that the justice court rules of civil procedure trump the mediation notice and that the mediation notice is flawed and if it's flawed or it conflicts with the, with the rules of civil procedure, then the rules of civil procedure apply. Now, standard. Standard says, standard six says, shall con we shall conduct a mediation in a manner that promotes presence of the appropriate participants. So the idea that participants, you want to have the right people at the, part, at the table party participation, procedural fairness, and then it goes on in A3 to say the presence of absence, the presence or absence of persons at the mediation depends upon the agreement of the parties and the mediator. So what they expect, they, what they argue is that first I don't have to be there because I don't have to bring my client because the rules say I don't have to bring my client. And if you mark me failure to appear, I'm gonna complain because I really am here, we really are here because the attorney is here, not the party. And secondly, they say, um, well, you can just waive it. Or, right, or the party, other party can just waive it. So now we turn to the pro per and we say, hey, you can waive the presence of the real party in interest if you wanted to and go forward with that. And my question to you, now none of this feels good to my, to my sensibilities, right? But I've been beaten down because of this. Hostility erupts between mediator and attorney <laughs> because the attorneys um, do not like to be marked FTA failure to appear, right? They don't like to be marked that way. So I'd like to know how you handle. I mean, I've got some ideas, but I want to know how you handle it. Yes, sir. It strikes me in a couple of different ways that none of this promotes the purpose of mediation because the attorney most of the time doesn't want to be in mediation. They just want to. They're just doing it because the court is sending them mediation notice, and they don't even want to be there. They have nothing to mediate. They just want what they want, and they're going to get it in, in trial. So marking them as fairly to appear and then having them do some motion, and then they move right into the next phase, I, I think it's no, uh, you know, it's like water up. It probably is a preferable outcome rather than being stuck in, in a situation where they're actually going to Assuming they have full authority, which I think presumably they do they have full authority, they have to actually try to negotiate with the pro per that may be very difficult to negotiate. So I think you're not, you're, 
by insisting on, wait a second, we didn't do all the right process, you're possibly playing into and assisting the, not, the, uh, the party that's there representing my attorney rather than assisting the process and having a meaningful mediation. So you know, sticking to the letter, I don't know that that necessarily serves the purpose. Well, sticking to the letter doesn't serve, doesn't serve the purpose of efficiency. And people say, we're all here, we're ready to go. Why mediator are you the one saying we can't mediate because not the right people aren't in the room? And so one of the options is to say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, and this, this is easy to do if you haven't mediated a lot, I guess. Oh, I'm sorry, we can't mediate today. I have to mark you at failure to appear. You'll have to go away. And then the ah, hostility erupts, right? The other option is, well, you, you know, you, we can't mediate today because the right people aren't here, but you're certainly free to go out in the hallway and you guys can come to a settlement out here. You're here, you're, your time need not be lost, but I'm not gonna sit and mediate with you here in the mediation room. Okay, the next option is, okay, why don't we all waive the requirement? So we'll all just sit and agree that we'll waive the requirement. The next, that's not my favorite option for a couple of reasons, but my favorite option is to say to the attorney, you know, why don't you go and file your real party and interest order now and see if the judge will rule on it now and that way we will do all the right things and we won't have a problem. Um, I don't have a problem if you can get that order signed now and we've been able to get that to be accomplished. But sometimes the judge is in trial and is not available to do that. So that's, that's the problem that comes up. Um, you know, more frequently now, I mean, I can see the, the um, arguments on both sides, efficiency on the one side, and then quality of the process, integrity of the process, you know, upholding the justice court rules. You know, what does the judge really want us to do? We'll go to the court staff, the court staff will say, it's up to you, mediator, you do whatever you think, right? Because it's your room, it's your process, you figure it out. So um, I think what would help is if the, if the mediation notice and I don't know that Rule 130C, which is the rule that might actually apply to us, Rule 130C of the Justice Court Rules of Civil Procedure, every party says, every party must participate in the mediation conference in good faith. So along the lines of statutory construction, if it just said every party must participate in the mediation conference, period, we would know they had to be there but unless they had the judge's order permitting them not to be present. But when it says in good faith, it seems to, the thrust of it seems to go towards good faith and not towards the actual being present. So I don't, I don't feel that. And then it goes on to say a party may appear and participate in person or a party may participate by telephone with the prior approval of the court. And then says every, each party at a mediation conference must have lawful authority to settle the lawsuit or have a representative available who has the lawful authority to settle the lawsuit. So none of that clearly says you have to be there other than your attorney. Until you turn to the mediation notice, paragraph six, which says an individual may appear and represent himself, mediation notice paragraph six, and then says a corporation may be represented by a full-time officer of the corporation whose principal duty is not representing the corporation in court. So then the attorney will say to us, well, I'm here and my client's not here, but I'm an officer of the corporation. I'm an officer of the corporation. And so that's good enough. I have full authority to settle and I represent the corporation. I'm here in both capacities. I stand with both hats on and I fulfill this. And Art and I talked about this and we said, well, it says whose principal duty is not representing the corporation in court. So if you attorney, you're Go ahead. Oh, well, rule 31 is the unauthorized practice of law. If you're a lawyer, you're not unauthorized to practice. Right. So you could appear as an attorney. 
Right, but you cannot appear as the real party in interest. Yeah, that's the issue. Is the attorney is, is representing them is saying I am the real party in interest because I'm an officer of the corporation and they're not and they're not yeah, it's a sticky it's a sticky thing. So what I propose is that we harmonize the rules of mediation notice and uh, and what we obviously it sounds like what you guys are from your faces, it sounds like you're look you are dealing with it kind of the way I do, which is go get your order signed or how many how many people actually mark them failure to appear and refuse to mediate? Or do you problem solve around? You, yeah, well, the academics that. do. <laughs> I've done that. Um, I have too. And I faced that, you know, hostility interrupted. And it was like. I just say, you're a lawyer, you can read this. This is what it says. <laughs> and if you have a problem, go to the, talk to the judge. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I say. That's what, and that's what they do. I did that for a couple of times, like I said, until they beat me down and they said, nobody else but you does this. So I always say, oh, Art Henshaw does it. But I don't do it every time. Yeah. Well, I yeah. want to ask Art, if you say you're a lawyer, read it. And what it says is supposed to. Yeah. Or should. It doesn't say shall or must. And that's interpreted different by attorneys. Absolutely. Yes, sir. And again, marking an absent. Disadvantage is most likely more the pro per rather than the representative part. So you're not really helping or you're, it's not even handled. You're actually potentially helping the party that you think hasn't followed the rules carefully. Well, if I was helping them, I don't think they would bow, this is a southern term, bow up at. We don't say that out here in Arizona, do you? You guys never heard of bow up at? You know, like a rooster? That's what we say in Florida. We bow up at someone. Well, when they wouldn't bow up at me the way they do if, um, if, they, if it was playing into their secret agenda because they don't like it. They want to mediate it right then and there without, the, that, without their client present. And the client doesn't want to come down. So I mean, I I don't I haven't seen that, but I could be wrong. You mean you could you could be right? Well, I, mean, I, well, I think what you see there is a natural reaction of an attorney being surprised by something. Yeah. They weren't yeah. yeah. But if, if they took a step back and thought about it, they're right. like, well, this doesn't hurt us at all. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, so you're saying that attorneys are not thoughtful. If they were thoughtful, they'd be okay. Go ahead and do it. That really fits my agenda. I mean, it doesn't hurt their agenda, is what I'm saying. In, in many cases, it's probably, I mean, I'm thinking typically of the, of the uh, collections case. Yeah, so, mediation. and yeah. so actually, um, they want these cases to settle as quickly as possible. That's what their economic incentive is. And they prefer not to go to trial. And they prefer to get it settled in mediation if it gets that far. Um, but I just want to clarify uh, that I have done the, too bad, so sad. And you know, we do have um, these days where um, there are individuals who say, I am the corporate representative because I am a secretary of the corporation and I'm representing them in court. And you see them at the justice court every day and you know their job. They used to be a private mediator working for XYZ Funding Corporation and now they work in-house for XYZ Funding Corporation. And under this rule, under number six, a corporation may be represented by a full-time officer of the corporation whose principal duty is not representing the corporation in court. That is what their principal duty is. The real party in interest according to this order, this is a judicial order, 
has not appeared. Is not present. Yeah, the real party is not present. And so, uh, I mean, I just, I think that we can we can fix it. I just wanted to, to bring it to people's attention and kind of tell them talk about it. So in my handout where it says here, party need not be present, I put a question mark there because that is not exactly what the rules say. I think the lawyers read it that way. Um, and they argue that to me from time to time um, with these different rules. And I think it would be a clarification might be in order. So what was suggested to me is that maybe a clarification would be helpful um, in the mediation notice or something to harmonize the rules because I don't think the rules themselves are, are crystal clear. Go ahead. Um, I wanted to bring up one other thing on number six, appearance of parties just because uh, this came up the other day. Look at the last sentence. Um, generally, marital communities, partnerships, limited liability corporations, and other entities must be represented by an attorney. Yeah, they're, they're changing that. Uh, marital communities, we, well, we, we don't represent, we don't. But they don't have to be represented by a community. They may be represented by, uh, by a community, by an attorney. It says they must be represented by an attorney. Mm -hmm. That's what it currently says. And uh, I talked with Kim yesterday on that to get it changed to may yeah so fyi and to an attorney may must shall should and those are all magic words they all mean very specific things right okay good on that one any other great ideas or ways to handle real party and interest all right, standard, another integrity of the process. Um, I can't leave my minor child outside. So a mediator and party shows up to mediation with their 14-year-old child in tow, says I will not leave my 14-year-old outside, understandably in the courtroom hallway, it's not really safe out there. Um, but the child is old enough to know what's going on, to understand, and old enough to breach confidentiality, not old enough to be bound by a confidentiality agreement. And so, uh, do they stay in the room with the parent? Do they speak or stay silent? Do they agree to confidentiality? What do you guys think? What have you done? Not had this? Not had it? I'm a parent, so I, I guess I'm a... All right. Um, standard 6A3 says the presence or absence of the parties depends on the agreement of the parties and the mediator. So one of my concerns is I, we could all agree that the child could be in the room, but my concern is then the child doesn't sign, can't sign the confidentiality agreement. I guess the parent could sign the confidentiality agreement and agree to try to bind the child to confidentiality, but we really can't bind the child. So the pro per who's there, the other party who's there, if they're both pro per, um, my, my other party might not really understand what they're agreeing to, right, or what they're waiving when they waive it and they allow the presence of the child there. Again, in the interest of efficiency, we probably, everybody probably says, okay, we spent enough time on this, move on to the next thing, let's just mediate, let's just, let's just go. But it's interesting. But, but if the other side doesn't agree, then, you, then do you have a failure to appear? No, because they're actually there, but, but they're they refusing, they're in the room. The child's, are, yeah. So another thing I thought about as I this morning when I was talking to my mediation clinic is I thought, you know, this I love creative problem solving. So when we go, oh, this is no problem, we'll figure something out, we'll just wait until you have another adult show up and take care of your child out in the hallway. So we'll just take, how long will it take you to get someone else here? 15 minutes, it's fine. We don't want to waste anyone's time. We'll just wait. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, something like that might be a way to go. Send them, send them to court. 
What's that? Send them in the car to watch some other proceedings. Yeah, and send them, put, them, put them close to a bailiff, go sit somewhere safe, that's a good idea. All right, how about this one? You've got an hour between mediations at Justice Court. You've read the pleadings on the next few cases, and you're curious about the subject matter of the next case. It involves a local business or a real estate dispute. And gee, I've got my smartphone here. I could go on the maps function, and I could just look at an aerial view of the business in dispute while I'm waiting. Or I could do the you know Kelly Blue Book on the value of the car in dispute. Or I could Google up this person and see what their Facebook page looks like. Or who is this, right? I mean, you're bored and you got your smartphone. Can you do it? Should you do it? Independent factual investigation. So uh, this I put under quality of the process, standard six. But I mean, what do you guys think? No, it doesn't feel right, does it? But it's so tempting. Right? Especially if you, I have, I'm a comedian with students, and the students are like, I think I know this business. I think I've seen this before. You know, what about, you know, no, 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 don't look stuff up. So, what the Arizona Code of Judicial Conduct under Rule 2.9c, and this is the model, close to the model rule as well, is that a judge shall not investigate facts in a matter independently. I feel like if a judge can't Google, we can't Google. Right? But it's come up. How about this one? Has anybody had someone uh, really want the mediator to look at the video on their phone? Yes, right? Okay. Please watch the video I brought. In fact, I had somebody say, I'm really not comfortable unless you do watch this video. Like, I don't take evidence, right? We don't do evidence. We don't do witnesses. We don't know. I don't want to see your stuff. But the video, they really want to show the video. Um, during the opening statement, they insist that the parties view the and the mediators and the opposing party view a video of the, the, video, the disputed matter. Maybe it's a condition of a leased apartment on move out, on a security deposit dispute, on the party's smartphone. What do you do and say? Standard thing is, no, we don't look at evidence. No, but I really insist. We don't do that. No, but I really need you to look at this because I don't see how you, what do you guys do? What did you do in yours? Well, I Is it absolutely? Is it unethical to to look at it to watch it? No. Is it unethical to look at it in caucus? No. no I don't think so either. I don't think so either. It's just that, that we we usually do. That's our standard. Is and if the other party really wants to see it, would you like to see it? No. Not in any not in any world would I like to view that video. <laughs> okay. Then we won't look at it together. But maybe in caucus it comes up. Good. That's me too. May I ask a question about that? Yep. Um, why would you not want to look at it? For me, it's the integrity of the process. Like, if I'm not going to view the evidence, and I'm not going to listen to witnesses, and I'm not going to let them bring in all the people sitting out in the hallway waiting to testify at mediation that they brought with them, which happens seems to happen a lot, then why would I watch the video? Now, on the other hand, Art, I did watch the video recently, and it was very helpful because there was a solution embedded 
in the video that no that we hadn't really uh, didn't really come to me until I was like wow what about that I see something okay I see a solution possibly yes sir. see I don't see I'm not sure I, I agree with the judicial standard applying to mediators because of the confidentiality aspect nothing they say or do in there is going to in theory come out of that room anyway and if the information is something that helps the mediator move the parties forward then it's useful. Every single one of the, of the uh, collection agency type mediations, they come in with copies of, of, of statements and things like that. How is that any different than coming in with a video or something else? Anything that, I mean, the collection agent, agency attorneys bringing that stuff in to show the defendant, yeah, we have all these documents, do you really want to go to court? Yeah. Are you willing to accept some sort of settlement solution? I'm not sure I see the difference. Okay, so I, I agree. I think it's fine. I'm noticing in Justice Court, we uh, we from time to time observe Justice Court a little bit to see what the court looks, you know, the trials look like. More and more parties are bringing smartphones to court and asking the judge to look at the smartphones. I've been, been hearing about that. So we may see more of that in mediation as well. Does the judge look at it? Sometimes. The yeah, problem with that is I don't. I tell them, well, I say, only if you're willing to give me your phone because I have to keep it until the appellate period passes. I'll put it in evidence, yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, actually, I think uh, I think it was the phone was used to show a video that had already been submitted as, a, as an exhibit. That would, not the phone itself, but the exhibit was in evidence already, but it was just a matter of playing it on a, on a system. That yeah, might I make mean, it if there's a copy of the exhibit copy. on a CD or something, yeah. that would be different. Yeah. Yes. So just to keep us on this topic, it's Patty, right? Yeah. Lisa. Lisa, sorry. Not even close to Patty, sorry. Um, so Lisa, your basic, your sense is I'm using my judgment based on the efficiency of the time period is what it sounds like. So what this, what I'm hearing from from you is that you want to give parties voice, like Susan was talking about, and it's, and I can tell you, and probably all of you have had this experience too, where times where people will say, "Do you want to see the pictures?" and you're like, eh, "You can describe them," and then they'll say four times, "I have the pictures. Do you want to see them?" and you realize, if I don't look at these pictures, there's a problem. They need me to look right. at these pictures. Right, that's what I'm, that was my experience as well. David? So I just let that play out between the parties. As I have this video I want to show you, I said, I, I'm neutral, why don't you show it to them? Because for me, pictures or video is that party's point of view. And if the mediation is about getting to the root of things, then to have them express themselves through the picture and video to the other party, I would ask, why is this significant to you? What is this show? What is this, what are you trying to say to the other party? 
And then when the other, then, then I just I let them work it out. I mean, it's a, it doesn't matter to me, but for you to show them to express yourself. And I think that's the best practice is that it puts the focus back on the relationship between them. And also, Art, I think yours is the best as a best practice as well. I've had it where there's a fairness of the process, and I really got to to show it. Yeah. There's a, you, know, you probably can hear this from me, but one of the things I was trained before I came to, to regular mediation from transformative world and restorative justice is that often there's, there is, sometimes there's something between the two people that needs to happen, whether it's an exchange of, of uh, in restorative they call it the exchange of uh, recognition or the exchange of I'm standing in your shoes or I understand where you're coming from, that will uh, stand as an obstacle to resolution until it happens. And I had somebody say recently, it was so meaningful for me. I needed to see face-to-face -face that other person and really hear from them how they understood where I was standing. And then I was able to move forward and, you know, and, uh, and resolve. And so I think that that one's always fun for me. All right, impartiality standard two. A hostility erupts between mediator and attorney. Um, this was my, uh, I love these little pictures. But, um, Standard two talks, says we shall, shall conduct the mediation in a partial manner and avoid conduct that gives the appearance of partiality. We should not act with partiality or prejudice based on any participant's personal characteristics, background, values, and beliefs, or performance at a mediation. So when they bow up, there's that, you know, and, it, and you inside you feel that automatic response. You know, I try to tell the students, if the other person has got you angry, they've pulled you off center and they've quote unquote won because now you're no longer standing in firm ground, you're, no, you're over here somewhere and you're off balance and you may not be more effective. So get back to your center and don't let persons, it may be their secret agenda is to pull that mediator off balance. The mediator is all riled up and hostile and frustrated and flustered. Um, if unable to conduct mediation impartially, we shall, shall withdraw. So Marjorie Silver wrote this wonderful article about love, hate, and other emotional interference in the lawyer-client relationship. Uh, and she's written uh, more and more on this recently. But she had this, this list, and I took it directly from her law article in the Clinical Law Review. And I love, how do I feel about the party? Do I look forward to seeing them, or do I dread it? Do I over-identify with or feel sorry for the party? Do I feel any resentment toward the party? I think those are kind of standard things we ask ourselves. But how about these next questions? Do I get extreme pleasure out of seeing the party? Do I feel bored with the party? Am I fearful of the party? Um, I would add, you know, am I uh, attracted to the party? Um, and do I want to protect, reject, or punish the party? Am I impressed by the party or the party's attorney? You know, that I think is uh, so, um, I've been so impressed by Arizona's legal community because it's warm and welcoming and I know a lot of people here um, I had a mediation once where I was on the phone and they said, oh, and, and uh, Susan Dykoff is observing this mediation today. It was a long silence on the phone. This, this little voice came back and said, would that be Professor Dykoff? I was like, uh-oh. This is so-and-so, and I was in your class, you know, uh, three years ago, and I'm like, oh, great. So not only am I outed as professor, you know, and sitting in the corner of there observing a mediation, but uh, you know, but there's this. I'm um, their professor, and there's a you know, like any of that. 
Um, but all of that. So I like this idea, ask why. Why am I feeling that way? And mere awareness of it can bring it under control. The minute I start to become aware of it, it can start to bring it under control. But I like this little checklist and it just kind of resonates for me. Are there any other ones that you would add? Is there any other ways that you check and balance yourself on your partiality? Impartiality. One of my colleagues is Professor Betsy Hollingsworth. Uh, she came here from Washington about the same time I did, and she's a more senior clinical professor to me. Um, she's writing an article about drafting the settlement language. Um, so one of the things that she says is that if you look at standard 6A5, it says the roles of a mediator Mixing the role of a mediator and the role of another profession is problematic, and thus the mediator should distinguish between the roles. Um, I'm concerned about this growing question, some case law that she says is in other jurisdictions, that says that a mediator can't draft the mediation settlement agreement language. Now, if the mediator is not an attorney and the mediator is drafting the settlement language, then we would argue perhaps that drafting the language is the unauthorized practice of law because drafting contractual language is the practice of law, perhaps. We might say that. But I'm, I'm not. I am a lawyer so and licensed here. Um, so I'm not concerned about that. What I'm more concerned about is when do I step over the line and start to actually advocate right, or, or advise in my drafting? Because I love drafting contracts, and I feel like I, it's very tempting for me to go, oh, I can draft that. Oh, I can draft that. I know some fabulous language I can stick in that agreement that'll just be super enforceable and really great. You know, so <laughs> it's, a, it's uncomfortable. But in some of these other jurisdictions, uh, I guess they're moving to the idea that the mediator just writes up the language that the parties come to. Um, and that and have to, and doesn't draft the language themselves. The, you know, this standard doesn't say you you must you may not draft, but I guess it has been interpreted in some jurisdictions that way. Art. So last year there was a change to the Arizona Supreme Court rules, or there was a proposed change regarding um, that mediation was not the practice of law, um, and that mediators who. Um, wrote up settlement agreements were therefore basically under the Supreme Court rule because remember we do not have a statute that deals with the unauthorized practice law. We're like the only state in the country because the legislature hates lawyers. Um, and so now it's a, it's a Supreme Court rule instead. And um, there was a lot of hoo-ha about this and it was the state bar's ADR section that suggested this and um, what they one of the things that most people didn't realize is that there's also an exception that says uh, people who are working for government entities in their job function are not engaging in the practice of law. So this group, our job function is to do these tasks and therefore we would be exempted from engaging in the practice of law under the Supreme Court rules. So we are safe. On UPL. From, on UPL, exactly right. But we're not safe from Standard 6A5. Exactly right. We're not safe from, are we giving too much help? Sort of. And plus, we're the court, right? 
So what do we do? We tread lightly. We try, is that, is that a fair statement? But I, I'm, I mean, contracts was my area. <laughs> I still teach it. And so in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, it should be enforceable. It should be definite enough to be enforceable. It shouldn't be too vague. It should actually be signed by both parties. I mean, I am thinking, you know, ticking off the little check marks um, to make sure that it's enforceable. So um, I guess tread lightly. And again, almost it's that art, not a science. Okay, how about conflicts of interest? How about standard three? Litigating before the presiding judge for whom you mediate. Does anyone do that? Is that a conflict of interest? No, right? It's not a conflict of interest. Unless what? Is there any time in which we would violate standard three, the appearance of a conflict of interest? Art and I had a conversation about this, and we thought there might be a, a time that it might, it might actually rise to that level. But there's, they say no. Why do you say no? Why would we say there would be a conflict of interest? Because it's not partial, it's not partiality. It's not a relationship between a mediator and a mediation participant. It's not, it's not, um, it's not partiality to a particular party. Yes, sir? I presume you're not talking about litigating the same case. No, certainly not. Yeah. Other kinds of cases. Let's say I do landlord-tenant cases all the time, and I'm mediating the landlord-tenant cases as a mediator, and I'm litigating the landlord case landlord-tenant cases before that same judge in that courtroom? I don't think it is, so long as you're complying with confidentiality requirements. I mean, once you've broken those, then you can get into other issues like ex parte or whatever. But yeah. you know, I, I, if you're maintaining the required confidentiality, then I'm not sure where the conflict would be. Okay. Well, I mean, it's possible that the when you are the mediator mediating on behalf of, or conducting the mediation on behalf of the court, you're sort of working for that judge. And then other times you are representing parties for that judge. And I'm not sure, it might be more of an issue where for the time that you're litigating, less of an issue for the time of meeting. So it might be more of a rule, is it 1.12, 1.11, uh, under our model rules of professional conduct for lawyers? It might be more of an issue of that, that you, but it, it, you're not, it's not the same or it's not the same or substantially similar case. It just feels weird. It's an appearance of impropriety, not it, a conflict of interest. Exactly. But standard here says the appearance of a conflict of interest. So a mediator shall avoid the appearance of a conflict of interest. Now we don't have the shall we don't have the old canon of the legal ethics on appearance of impropriety, but we still have it in our DNA, I argue, that we all feel that way. Yes, sir? I think it would be analogous to the ethical opinions related to Judge Potem's having litigation or cases of the judge that Potem for it. It's, there's a whole three or four opinions that are very clear that it's okay as long as you're not, it's not a substantial amount of litigation 
that's exactly what Art, the conversation Art and I had is as long as it's not a substantial amount of litigation, as long as it's not a huge amount of your, both are not a, I would, a huge amount of your practice, at some point it's gonna rise to the level of the appearance of impropriety or actual impropriety. Perfect. Okay, how about, oops, sorry, how about this one? The case has one party represented by counsel and one party pro per. Mediator arrives to the mediation and greets the attorney with, hi, Josh. It's great to see you. Why didn't I see you just last week? What a pleasure it is to see you again. I look forward to this mediation. <laughs> you guys don't like that, huh? <laughs> All right. What does it violate? It certainly undermine the confidence of the other party in terms of what they're likely to get out of that mediation. <laughs> What's going on? Right. And if we look at standard 3A, it's certainly the appearance of a, a conflict of interest from a relationship between a mediator and a mediation participant. Let's go back to my, uh, so yes, I, so please don't do that, I guess. Uh, it's certainly the appearance of impropriety. Although it's, it's, I always talk about my internal dialogue is one thing and my external behavior is something else. So internally I'm like, great, I'm so glad to see him. He's so much fun. And who's this person? Yeah. <laughs> and my external behavior is, good to meet you, good to see you, great, awesome, you know, you're equal and doing all the things you're supposed to be doing. Um, back to that profession thing, professor, professor thing. I should have, at that point, gone and gotten the consent of all the parties to the, I think we did actually, do you have any problem with going forward with the fact that one of your former professors is in the room? Do you have any problem with the fact that this attorney at one time had this person as their former professor, do you have any issues with that? Would you like a different mediator? That sort of a thing. I think that's what we would do. Um, I think that good work. That's exactly what you should do on that one. This. Um, so what? Let's say that you know you are a mediator. You are um, at justice courts every Thursday, and you have some of the same debt collection attorneys every Thursday. You see them. What do you need to say to the pro, what do you say? I see this debt collection attorney every Thursday in debt collection cases just like these. Do you need to disclose that? Well, let me turn it into a positive. Okay. Well, I say, I say to the pro per, you know what? I know this guy really well. However, this is not gonna hurt you because frankly, I know how he operates. <laughs> what would happen then? Okay. What did you? Do? I didn't get that. Did, did you give a, a nonverbal response with your no, face? No, no, I, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> I missed. But the question is, what do you need to disclose, right? And um, there's uh, the ABA's. Um, Committee for Ethical Guidance for Mediators says that you need to disclose that you have mediated all these cases with this attorney. Um, and then if you don't, it's a violation of these ethical rules. Um, and so I think that's something that we in the justice courts need to be quite aware of because we have a lot of the repeat player attorneys come time and time again. Um, and you can do it in a positive way. There's certainly nothing that's wrong with that. Um, but you do need to have that kind of disclosure, even because it says you need to disclose professional relationships. And this is a professional relationship. You have provided professional services for this individual and his or her client, and that needs to be disclosed. And then follow it up with, 
But the good news for you is that I know how they operate, and so uh, you know I, I think we'll be okay. But if you would like to you know, get a different mediator, that's perfectly fine. And then thinking in your internal monologue is there won't be any other mediator who's not just mediated sixteen thousand cases with the same uh, person as well. But, yeah. Okay. How about questions, thoughts? Two more. Just two more. I have just two more. Advanced blanket consent is kind of what the ethical, the PR people call this thing. The, you know, when you say to the party, um, now, this is how I was trained as well. Actually, I was trained like this. You're supposed to get the consent in caucus when you have them separated um, of each party to revealing um, any information to the other party at the end of the caucus. So end of caucus confidentiality. However, it's more efficient just simply to say, listen, I'm going to assume, how about this, I'm going to assume that everything that you tell me in this private session when we're talking privately together is okay to share with the other person except for the things that you tell me you don't want specifically to be shared. Um, so let's go through at the end of the caucus, and I was actually trained, I don't know if you were trained this way to use a yellow pad and to have it like flipped a certain way so that you have your caucus, you know, your, ca your caucus with the one is in a different part of your yellow pad than the caucus with the other, and then you flip it back and forth and then you put the secret facts on a third part of the legal pad so that they're, you know, kept separate and you never inadvertently flip your legal pad over and show them anything. Uh, maybe you don't write any notes down, I don't know, but I was trained to all that and I can't remember all the different fancy things we're supposed to do. But um, I was trained like this. Is there anything that you would like me not to share with the other side? And I think we've covered that that's okay, that's sufficient. Um, but if you look at standard 5B, it says a mediator who meets with any persons in private session, e.g. the caucus, during a mediation shall not convey directly or indirectly to any other person any information that was obtained during that private session without the consent of the disclosing person. And so um, that advanced blanket consent is, seems to be fine, but I think it's easy for us to forget about it and then just kind of never say, is it, I, I just think it would be best practices to kind of reiterate that over again at the beginning of the caucus and cover caucus confidentiality in, um, in our opening statement. All right, my last one, I'm not signing anything today. Oh, I wasn't going to sign anything. You wanted me to sign something? So my opening statement says, if you reach agreement at the end of today, we will write up a, we will write up a contract or write up an agreement in writing that I will ask you to sign if you reach agreement. Does that sound reasonable to you? And, okay, yeah. So that I got frustrated with this and put stuff, every time I get frustrated with something, I put a new line in my opening statement, right? Everybody's here in good faith, right? That means that you have full authority to settle, right? That means you have full authority to settle for any amount, any amount, right? And I, you know, I am hearing, I've heard a lot of people say I don't have authority less than a certain amount, and I haven't, I haven't taken that as a lack of good faith. I haven't reported that as a lack of good faith. I've said, well, that's just kind of, where their bottom line was, but I don't know, but that's a good point. So the alternative to this one, this is this is like version A. Version B is, um, I have my own language, I'll just send that along later. And I'm not gonna, I'll sign, we'll sign something today that says I'll send my own language along later. I don't like that, right? Or um, you write it up and uh, mail it out, which the rules say that the Justice Court Rules of Civil Procedure say we can do, mail it out and I'll sign it later. What's the problem with that? Not from an ethical standpoint, but from a, but from a process standpoint. What's the pitfall of those three problems? 
I'm not signing anything today. I'll, I'll sign it later on. I'll send it on my own language later. Um, you send it to me by email, and I'll sign it when I see it in the email. Put it in language later is not what they agreed to today. Okay. They could easily reword it in a way that wasn't what the other party agreed to. Okay, so they could change it. They could um, the party could change it between right this moment and then what they send out later. Okay, what else? Change their mind. Okay, buyer's remorse can set in, right? And uh, number one is really the second bite of the apple. Well, I didn't really get what I wanted in that mediation, so I'm going to get a little more. Or I'm going to agree to what we said in mediation, but I also want to stipulate a judgment. I forgot to mention that in the mediation, so if I put that in my language, you know, or whatever it is that, yeah, comes along later. So um, I, I love this great advice, and I saw in the Justice Court, I think it's in the Rules of Civil Procedure, that says we can either email it and have them sign it later or sign on their behalf with their consent. So I'm, I'm really attached to this new thing of making sure that I sign for the telephonic party or I sign for that party if they're, if they're telephonic and they say, well, I can't sign it. Well, I can sign for you. I can sign for you, you know, and put something together um, that, um, and in, those, in the private mediation world, I've seen that second bite of the apple too many times, that the email, the post-mediation, settling the thing and getting the thing nailed down in emails back and forth, it falls apart. And I've not had good success with that. Um, one of the things that uh, I have done to protect parties um, is to, instead of using the settlement agreement, to use the mediation outcome notice to basically do the bullet point terms of an agreement. Um, so in private mediation, a lot of people will have a term sheet. And if there are lawyers involved, they'll do, well, we need to have the boilerplate. We don't have that. And so if you do the term sheet and everybody signs it, then that's the terms, and then they can go further if they want to go further, and those terms will be incorporated. Um, and so we've done it that way to make sure that those terms are documented somewhere, or we just have no agreement, um, and if they'll sign it the next day, and that's fine too. Um, but using that outcome notice in that way is one way to protect somebody who needs to have the deal done today um, because then they've got a deal. Or we've done with the bullet points and then we, I mean, it's time to stop. We've done with the bullet points, the deal points, and then put at the bottom, we'll send along their standard language, right? So that, yeah, we, we try to incorporate both sides, but yeah, I, I love having something so in writing. On, I'm sorry, on the mediation outcome, notice that you mark other at the bottom. Yes. And then say, there's, there's really no agreement at that point in time if they both have it signed. Well, they'll both right. sign the mediation outcome notice because everybody signs it. I get, well, what I get a lot is under the debt collection is the attorneys, they'll, they'll come to an agreement and the attorneys will say, you know what, I'll mail out the agreement to you with the payment terms. Your form doesn't fit. We've got our own standard form. I'll mail it out to you and we'll be done. And that's when you say, so let me make sure I've got what the, let's talk about what the standard, what your deal is. They're going to pay $100 a month for 25 months, right? Okay, so we can write that down here in the outcome notice so that this person has protection. You're okay with that, right? And typically, I haven't had any problems with them saying that. And if they do have problems, then you can say, all right, you know, we'll write no agreement, and then you sign their name. Okay. okay.
just a couple things briefly. Kim is there to uh, validate your parking on the way out. Please remember to do the evaluation. And I have a quick question for our professors and for the uh, for our mediators. Um, Arizona Rules of Protective Order Procedure, as they've been rewritten, Rule Number 29 does specifically say no. Uh, alternative dispute resolution for protective orders, but it says you can do it for injunctions against harassment, which is typically neighbor versus neighbor. So let me ask our mediators, uh, who'd like to do uh, mediations for injunctions against harassment? Two. Okay. What, three? Four? Okay. Our professors, what do you think? Good idea? Not a good idea? We have a lot of rooms in our clinic, so we can keep them really far apart. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, we we could if we do them in our in our building, it would be a lot easier to do them. Well, uh, but, the justice we used to get we used to get these cases all the time in mediation. I don't know if any of the, the people who've been around for a while remember doing mediations when parties had injunctions against harassment and stuff against each other. Um, and I used to always be really worried about it. And the judges were like, "I'm the judge, I know," and I'd be like, "You saw them for five minutes. How do you know?" Um, so there are pros and cons each way uh, in my mind. And so I think that it's probably probably more security at the courthouse if you do them. Um, and the, you kind of have the imprimatur of, you know, this is real and you got the cops and that sort of stuff. But having people be in the same room can be really problematic. I wouldn't would put them in the same room. Any other questions? All right, thank you. Well, I was thinking that the clinic is a nice, good place to do it, and we've done them there before with the, with injunctions. But I've done it, but not where I thought they were carried. And we don't have a metal. We have a now we have a rule against weapons on campus, a new rule. But we don't have a metal. Do you have a metal detector in your new building? Yeah, the marital communities? Yeah. I never 